0: Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Today, I'm welcoming back my friend, Dr. Todd Doit, a globally recognized leadership educator, author, and speaker to chat about his latest book, Dancing with Monsters, a tale about leadership, success, and overcoming fears. If you're familiar with and love some of the best-selling business books that are written as fables, like The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni, The One-Minute Manager by Kenneth Blanchard and Dr. Spencer Johnson, or Who Moved My Cheese by Dr. Spencer Johnson, then you're going to love Dr. Duet's book as well. Dancing with Monsters is written as a business fable told through the perspectives of vampires and monsters with names like Sheets, Mum, Wolfie, and Z. Through these intriguing characters, Dr. Dewitt explores what facing fears, leadership, and success have in common and how embracing and confronting our fears is necessary in order to harness our team's true power. The book is a fun read, and I believe it'll inspire you to face and overcome some of your own fears so you can better optimize your key relationships by leveraging humility, authenticity, and kindness. Todd is always one of my favorite people to learn from, and in our conversation today, he doesn't disappoint. While we do talk about the book, which I highly encourage you to read, I think you'll really enjoy hearing more of his frank and fresh approach to leadership, authenticity, and self-awareness. In today's episode, we'll chat about why he believes that embracing authenticity must be part of every leader's journey and why it's important to view people as partners, not resources, in the work that we're trying to accomplish together. We'll discuss how toxic positivity can derail teams and the difference that building trust and communicating with candor can create. We'll also discuss how leadership has changed and is evolving in a post-pandemic world and Dr. DeWitt's Five Rules of Leadership as well as a motto that he believes every leader should adopt. Dr. DeWitt is a lot of fun to talk and listen to, so sit back and get ready to discover how to embrace authenticity, build trust, and turn obstacles into opportunities on your leadership journey. And don't forget to grab a copy of his new book, Dancing with Monsters, to discover how you can overcome fears, lead with authenticity, and unleash your true potential. Welcome back to the Impact Makers podcast, Dr. Todd Doett. It is an honor, I want to tell you, to be a return guest, as there have not been many on this podcast. So you must be something special. I feel very special. Thank you, Jennifer. Wow. I, of course, had to bring you back because you've written yet another book, as we were discussing before we recorded. You've written so many, you've lost count. I've been counting, though. This is your fifth book, which will be coming out on April 18th, Dancing with Monsters, a tale about leadership success and overcoming fears. And I had to bring you back to talk about that because this book is a little bit different tell me kind of what your thought process was as you embarked on this journey of your fifth book and what you wanted to accomplish.
1: Sure. I mean, I have to be honest in in answering that question. I tried to write a novel for the third time in my adult life. It was about it was about a a vampire in an office type situation.
0: (laughs) Well, that's the book I want to read. You need to write that.
1: (laughs) I did. And you don't want to read it. (laughs) For the third time, I created a pile of uh, unuseful words. <laughs> and I was reflecting on that. At, it, it just take my word for it. It's very true. Just not a novelist. And so I've I've committed to knowing that now after trying, because I believe in trying. And I was reflecting on that and feeling weird about it. And then I thought, well, I have another idea. I've been thinking for years, ever since I read Who Moved My Cheese, about writing a fable, a simple, short, colorful, outside-the-box fable. And I've obviously, I had the vampire in my mind. And I said, well, what other cool characters could we come up with? Vampire, ghost, zombie, <laughs> werewolf, et cetera. And I was like, okay, so now we've got a, a team and we got to give them something that they need to accomplish. And, and I'm going to do this. And I just sat down and I, I hadn't had a lot of planning or anything. I just sat down and six hours later, the first draft was done. Which is crazy. Wait, you uh, wrote this
0: book in six hours? Most of it, yeah. The first draft,
1: yeah. yeah. It's only about uh, less than 18,000 words. So it's fairly short as books go. But I really wanted a different vehicle. I've written story-based books where the stories are like I would share in a keynote. I've done that many times. And... I just wanted to do something different and didn't want to let go of the idea that failed in the novel. And so I said, I'm going to do a fable. And uh, it, it, I think it turned out really, really fun, really interesting, really useful. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So I love that you started with the characters. They needed something to do. So what was it that you were trying to convey by writing this fable?
1: I wanted to cover some basic issues humans struggle with every day across all the generations, but especially you know, I'm thinking, I was thinking of millennials and Zs, honestly, when I wrote it, we have anxieties. Sometimes it gets worse than that. We have fears. uh, We have issues with confidence and we need to find our authentic selves as a part of becoming uh, um, focused, secure, confident, and successful. I I just think that's true for so many humans, especially in those generations. And so this team uh, are all in jeopardy of being kicked the heck out of monster world because they can't do the one thing all monsters have to do, which is to scare children. So they're given an, an ultimatum and a task to work on, and uh, they screw up mightily. And then finally, thanks to the efforts of their appointed leader, which is Joe Vampire, <laughs> they figure out how to do what they need to do better than they ever thought they could and to function as a team in the process and to try new things and to feel more secure and find their real selves. In the end, they're very successful. And and helping them get there was uh, honestly it was a blast. I, I I liked writing it as much as I hope people enjoy reading it.
0: Well you mentioned authenticity and I know that's long been a focus of yours. Why is that such a big part of each character's journey in the book?
1: Well I think every successive generation we've seen, Jennifer, honestly, gets more Kind of naturally in tune with that idea. So when I became a troubadour 20 years ago for that term, that idea, it was a little novel still. Today, I don't think so. I think the idea of being expressive, being honest, being sincere, being authentic, being fully you is more of an expectation than ever before. But it's not always easy. So you got to figure out how to do that. And I've classically had one great answer to how you do that, which isn't really in the book, but it's true. And that answer is that. Go be great. Whatever you're doing, don't be an average performer. Be great. Work your tail off and become great because it's amazing how much more people will allow you to be expressive and be fully you when you're really producing at a high level. And I think without stating it that way, that's what they did in the, in the book. They started kicking uh, butt and, and getting some uh, attention as a result. Hmm.
0: We well, also came up with some leadership rules. It's so always good to have a framework in the book. Tell me more about the leadership re- rules that you mentioned. Well, there were several.
1: Uh, be the boss, not the change, was one. I, I love that phrase. Be the boss, not the change. The idea is simple. We rely too much on pontificating uh, what should be done, what we do expect. There's a role for that, for sure, but we sometimes over rely on that and and fail to do enough. The thing that's way, way better, which is to actually go model the right thing, model it, show the way your behaviors, your words, your gestures. These have huge impact and speak volumes often much, much more than your words. So there's, I think I had five rules. So that would be, that would be one of them. Another obvious one, collaborate, don't dictate. Again, we've known as practitioners, you, me, millions of us, we've known that the idea of partnering instead of just using authority and dictating is preferable. We've known this forever, but it's still a slow evolution of team by team, org by org, people out there actually understanding that, appreciating that, and engaging that idea. And I really wanted uh, this to be a catalyst for continuing that evolution as we look at employees less and less as human resources and more and more as what they are, which is human partners we need to go figure out.
0: Hmm. Tell me more about that human partners. How, as leaders, can we view people as partners and not resources?
1: Well, it's funny. You know, adults go to work every day. And I, I can tell you right now, with great confidence, this is not a scientific comment, but it's probably true. They don't want to be treated like children. And yet what happens in a traditional hierarchy with power structures, which are necessary. I didn't say necessary evil, but they are necessary. What happens is that people use that authority, and what they, uh, what I teach, preach, and what many others uh, agree with is that that is dangerous. It's useful. It's necessary. It should be used this much, not this much, because no one wants to be treated like children. Adults, smart ones with college degrees, can be made to feel like a six-year-old when they're just told what to do and don't have an honest dialogue about what we might do together, what we might accomplish together. Call it voice, input, real say in what impacts me. I think that's always been there, and we're, again, back to an evolution of making that more and more common. So I I definitely had to have that in there.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. Well, I've got your rules right in front of me, so I'm going to give you the ones that you didn't mention. So you mentioned be the change, not the boss. Collaborate, don't dictate. Candor, not just kindness. Tell me about that one.
1: Well, I did a few things in the book to, that weren't simplistically uh, progressive-minded and 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 might be a little unexpected, and that's good because I'm trying to be honest too about what works in the real world based on my observations and my knowledge of of the org sciences. I got to tell you, candor is very often in short supply. You can have uh, I, this will give me in hot water with some of your listeners. You can have a progressive organization, a progressive team, and. They can be in love with positivity so much, which makes me happy, that it, it, it can become toxic. That's a thing. Look it up. It's for real toxic positivity. The idea is that we really become afraid. Of hurting feelings, afraid of helping someone not feel good that day for whatever reason, and so we choose to avoid saying anything that might cause that outcome. Uh, comes from a good place, creates a bad outcome. Candor is all about straight to the point, no innuendo. It doesn't mean rude, crude, bad, and negative. It can be delivered kindly, emotionless, or positively, but but it means straight to the point. So, candor, not kindness. And I have to I have to say. Kindness needs to be in abundance. Let me say it again. Kindness needs to be in abundance, but it can't be always the answer with no candor, or you won't find this thing we often mythically call the high performing team. You won't get that. That requires a beautiful balance of candor and kindness. The high performing teams, and you know this, that you've seen, they don't sit around attempting to not offend each other. They are kind most of the time, but they're trying to speak in a way that moves us forward that's candor. And I think that you can balance those two. And in fact, you can't have tons of candor without the kindness or it will come off as a relationship damaging thing. So you've got to have both.
0: Do you think there's a point, do you have to build a certain level of trust in order to apply candor to a conversation with someone or can that be done right away?
1: Well, most people entering new situations already have a baseline of, uh, let's call it, minimally acceptable trust in place. That's the way most of us are wired, according to the research. But the answer to your question is yes, you need to build more because candor is tough talk sometimes depending on the person, how much they like you, they trust you, they understand you, the mood they're feeling that day, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the reasons that I'm always talking to leaders and about leaders in a way that makes them more humble human vulnerable all these things that don't fit the 50 year old uh archetype of a leader we used to think about strong confident uh, those things are useful but they should be part of the equation not the whole equation the reason i'm always talking about that more progressive minded other oriented kind person is because that type of person can get
0: away with using candor effectively
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's a secret there's a book in there another book that's book number 6 i know there's radical candor and that's a great book but the, the uh, deep dive into candor, not kindness. I like that. You also, one of your, your fourth rule is opportunities, not obstacles. Now, before you even start to explain it, because I know you got a great explanation. Don't we all hate it when someone comes to you and says, I have an opportunity for you because you know that this is going to suck.
1: You know, I should, I should have put
0: that in the book, not to
1: say that word too many times. Wow, that's great. If I ever revise this thing, thanks, Jennifer, I'm going to do, do that. And you're not wrong. Uh, the The idea, however, is useful. The idea is that in spreading whatever it is you have to share with the team, you want to do so in a way that brings positive, useful, productive perspective to that issue. So you, my friend have, uh, I believe more than once, or at least once uh, endured me on stage telling stories. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was, it was awful. <laughs> oh, it was an opportunity. I really
0: enjoyed <laughs> it. Was it. An opportunity.
1: <laughs> well done. There's a famous story. I actually did it in a, in a virtual Ted talk. And you heard the story back in the day about my dad, some of the things he taught me during his journey with cancer before it got him. And that idea has stuck with me ever since. And when I started thinking Todd, what are those, what are those must-have rules for I'm um, thinking of a young leader and you, you got you got a few minutes with them, what would you say? I thought of 50 immediately. And then I said, You got you can't write a book with 50. Some people do. I don't I like focus. And so I got it down to those. I had to keep that one. I just had to, because we all 100 percent inevitable are going to face ridiculous challenges, things we wish we didn't have to tell the team about how we're going to work late, about how there's no resources for that, about how this thing that we thought was gonna work isn't gonna work, et cetera, et cetera. How you frame that to them, the perspective you share and offer them, and this is pretty good science out there on this in, in, in uh, OB, uh, actually impacts how they accept and think about the idea. And over time, measurably impacts performance just because you helped them see it in this way, not this way. Uh, another overused phrase glass half full, silver lining. Uh, those, are, those are reasonable. They're popular for a reason. And that's why the research uh, took place uh, for years is because it does help people when they're reminded that there is a, a silver lining. There is something there that actually helps us. I mean, that's the key to learning from failure in and of itself is going, yeah, that hurt. No denying that. But what is there that was kind of good about it? Asking that question is a precursor to seeing insights you just otherwise often wouldn't see.
0: So as a leader, is it your job before you kind of give the team the pep talk to identify the opportunities so that you can frame that up? Or do you work as a team to look for the obst- opportunities and the obstacles?
1: No, I think that, that both are, are great. One of uh, I'm a big advocate for planning communication, and we're also busy. I get that. I respect that. So busy every day that we just rush into the next situation we must rush into. I know where that comes from. But if you can take even a minute, even a minute before that meeting, it's amazing how you can organize thoughts a little or a lot that help you in that interaction you're about to enter, Uh, number one. Number two, the smart leader knows that the team collectively has different ideas than them, often more IQ on whatever the topic is than them. And they should be open to that little bit of organization they brought into the conversation evolving in a positive way based on their input. So I think they're both true. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, the fifth leadership role that you talk about in the book is, we've talked a little bit about about already, authenticity, not acting. Tell me <laughs> what that means. First of all, it's catchy. I, I thought that authenticity, not acting. The truth is most humans go to work
1: every day and act like crazy, which is amusing if you think about it, because very, very few of us were trained to be thespians of any kind, but we do. Uh, it's a sign of social intelligence that we enter relationship space and want to defer to others, want to not offend, want to please affirm others. That's very normal. And it's a sign of social intelligence, especially when you're looking at your supervisor or an executive or something of that nature, that you want to convey something productive, useful, if not affirming. It's also true that we do that so excessively that we miss uh, lots of productivity we otherwise could uh, I- enjoy at work. So authenticity is about checking that over abundance of impression management that we do at work, and remembering that real performance comes a little bit closer to honesty and that that candor, not kindness, idea. So less of the posturing. I like to tell people you're supposed to be a professional. Don't ever forget you're also supposed to be, as much or more, a person. And when we remember that and stop trying to act so polished like a role we're filling, which I know we are, it's amazing how others will let their guard down a little bit as well and reciprocate. And that's the path towards higher trust and better performance. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, I know you've been advocating, again, authenticity and and talking about some of these concepts for years, but certainly the leadership world has changed post-pandemic all the content that I read or that, you know, even some of it that I write or share is talking about human leadership and focusing on people and empathy and kindness and being vulnerable But that's hard for leaders who have been in the game for 20 years. So that's not how they were brought up. That's not their generation. That's not how they're wired. And I see many of them struggling with that. Do you have any good advice or tips for the leaders who are trying to change from that kind of command and control power um, that you mentioned earlier to the more empathetic human leaders that are needed in today's world today?
1: That's a very, very good, very tough question. Uh, Because we now have more generations than ever before in the workforce trying to understand each other, which can be hilarious, as you know.
0: (laughs) Yes. Uh, Can create comedy, yes.
1: It it does. It does. Conflict and comedy everywhere. Uh, So the answer is old dogs can learn new tricks. The question is whether or not they build a little self-awareness about the need for that. And so what I would tell them, if I was standing before all of them right now, I would say, (laughs) you need to remember When you were in the first one, two, three years of your career, yes, things were different. I hear you. But you need to remember how you thought you knew some stuff and later realized didn't know as much as you thought. You need to remember how much you didn't enjoy that person who was 10 and 20 years older than you and their perspectives didn't quite resonate with you. You need to remember that because now you're simply in the same situation in the other role. And then I'll make a gamble with you and tell you that the millennials and the Z's who are dominating the workforce now and will for the foreseeable future, they have things to offer you. There is more than one way to skin a cat, forgive the old phrase. And and the more you this is tough, but we were given one of these two of these, the more you do this and listen, ask questions and listen, the more you find out things they know that you otherwise wouldn't know. So that's a very basic and specific answer to your question. But they can't, and I would tell them this to wrap it up. Or you could do nothing I just said, and your career will be unpleasant. And end quicker than it otherwise would because you think you know it all. You don't. It's okay.
0: Well, that's I think and we again we had this pre-pandemic when everybody was uh crapping on the millennials. Now it's Gen Z. You know, we want to say that every generation that's coming into the workplace is entitled, is they don't want to be responsible. You know, whatever we're saying, I know entitled is certainly the big one, but. It really is the world that we live in. And I think people in all generations, myself included, not a Gen Z, my approach to work has changed, you know, my thoughts about how I want to be treated as I'm not an, I work for myself, so I'm a great boss, but I think. We bucket people into generational thinking and say, well, the Gen Zs are coming in, they're entitled, they want trophies, you know, just like the millennials did, they want to grow in their career, they want to change jobs every year and a half. But so do a lot of your older employees now. Um, And I think it really behooves leaders to not allow themselves to think about people in generational buckets. But as you said, to think about people as humans, that's That's my soapbox that I get on. These are humans. Everyone. My son is a millennial who acts more like a boomer than I do. And it continues to frustrate me that I can't get him to engage with me and technology and all these things. Wow! And he's just not wired that way. And I don't know how he, you know, (laughs) I've said so many times, I raised a millennial who doesn't act like a millennial. (laughs) That's bizarre.
1: I I, I love it though. The way I would phrase what you were trying to say in, in, in slightly different words is it's not about those buckets of generations and the stereotypes that go with them, which may or may not apply sometimes. It's about understanding personalities, regardless of age or generation, personalities, interests, needs, motivations, basic people stuff. That's how you figure people out. It doesn't matter if they're, uh, you know, 22 or, or 62.
0: Yeah, I watched a, a Disrupt HR video from a, uh, one of our youngest speakers that we've ever had uh, recently, and it was about Gen Z. And he was like, How we want to be treated. And I thought it was a funny line. He said, We want Lambo cash. <laughs> Lambo like, cash. I'm like, I want Lambo cash too. And I'm not Gen Z. So there. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're not so different <laughs> we're all the same well you give as as these uh, fable books often do with lots of great stories and angles you give some great advice in general too and you talk about the importance of fit in your career tell me a little bit more about that what should we be thinking about in terms of fit in our careers
1: it's important and difficult to find is the honest and that's one way i try to differentiate myself as i don't get simple platitudes and nothing else like a lot of voices do. I try to be very um, blunt and honest, and I hope that comes off. Fit is about exploring, which is about risks. You can't get around that. It's about exploring, and it's about taking risks, because anytime you do anything other than what you're doing right now, that's a risk. So fit, in my honest opinion, Jennifer, tell me yours, is experienced by a quarter of professionals, strong fit, something like that, a fifth. It's not half. It's not 90 um, that's that, that's that feeling where, you know, most of the time you're reasonably happy, being productive, feeling a little purpose maybe, and, and don't feel a need to go over there because where you are makes sense to you in a positive way, fit. And most people don't have it. And that makes me sad. I talk about purpose. I've shaped my life. I'm not a hypocrite thinker guy. I, I've shaped my life around this, taking risks, uh, including letting go of paychecks. You can relate my friend and, and in pursuit of fit. And and feeling everything I just said, and um, because it's worked pretty well for me, I am a, a, a Pied Piper. So what I tell people is, let's talk about the risks and how to reduce them. Because you need to have your eyes open before you start shifting, exploring, and moving in your career. Uh, what does it mean to save money? What does it mean to check your skills? What does it mean to network? All these things that will help you potentially change, shift, transition. With less risk, let's talk about those, but they're there. And if you really want that thing you told me you want, I I say this a lot to to people in coaching, LinkedIn and elsewhere. Well, then you're going to have to get honest about these risks because otherwise you're just full of it. Uh, How much do you want this? How much do you want this? That's the reality of fit. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a unicorn. It's real. And it takes work to get there.
0: Sure. Well, can you help people understand? I know you can what fit means. I mean, I know I've had three different careers, you know, in my first corporate HR career, I can remember a time when I felt like I was in the zone. I was getting up at 4.30 and going to work because I was so excited about, which if you know me getting up at 4.30 meant a lot. Um, I really felt like I was in the zone. And then I know when I was an executive recruiter, I remember being in my office one day and someone talking to me about the work I was doing. And I said, I feel like I'm in the job that is the highest and best use of my talents and gifts. And now in my job as a professional speaker and and business owner of a couple of businesses, I feel like I'm in the highest and best use of my talents and gifts. So at, at all points in my life, I've at some point felt that I was if had fit in my career and then that changed. So how do people pursue that in order to achieve it? Do you have some advice for
1: them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a couple of obvious things. And This is a little more in-depth and, and not addressed in the book, but the book was supposed to be a, a good skim on some of these issues that maybe could be followed up in conversation and training and so on. You know how that works. You need to work on what it means to be self-aware. And number one, number two, you need to be exploring and using knowledge instead of just random ideas in your head, You need gathering knowledge from people and sources about possibilities. And three, you need a support team that can be a reference point to keep you sane and to motivate you to call you out when your thoughts aren't somehow clear and to push you when you're fearful of a risk that maybe you should take. The self-awareness piece comes from reading and thinking, meditating, journaling, whatever vehicle works for you to get more clarity and organization in your mind the uh, exploring can become a regular thing should be a regular thing especially front third of your career when you're dreaming about great fit in the middle or or late stages Uh, you should be reading podcasts talking to senior people talking to people intentionally this is a big one talking to people intentionally outside of your immediate professional network because people who do things not related to you you're not looking for something from them they're not looking for something from you They will say things and do things that matter in their world that are a little different and foreign to you. And it will make your brain go, what's that all about? Does that relate to me? Is there a version of that that relates? It's a wonderful stimulant for thinking, which is why you should do it. And your support team, I'm talking two or three people, and they are not uncritical friends who tell you that you're great because they too understand that candor and kindness go hand in hand and they will motivate you, but they also want to see hard work and they want to hear ideas that sound thoughtful and rational. You put those three pieces in place, you got a good shot to move forward towards better fit.
0: I think that's fantastic career advice another great book idea for you or linkedin current learning course because not enough people they stay stuck because they don't know how to pursue it but all of the things that you mentioned are right at their fingertips those are available to everybody and very important in understanding both how to navigate life and your career well let's end with another framework because as a speaker i like frameworks and uh, as an author i know how important they are so s s g w tell me what that is, and how sure. we can apply
1: it. So my friend Joe Vampire in the book has a little mantra that he says to himself. I'll tell you where it came from. It came from me loving basketball when I was young because I found out from something I read. I want to say it was Sports Illustrated, but I'm not sure. I found out that Michael Jordan and many others in the athletic world would visualize success and say certain things to themselves on the regular to help get their brain where it needed to be to walk out and maximize their performance among other things that they did. But that was part of a routine for many of them that made an impact on me. I've been doing it ever since preaching ever since turns out there's some research that suggests it's very useful. And so I wanted to put it in there. So when Joe steps up to the plate to take a swing, he likes to say, take the step, get the scare, grow, win, take the step means get moving because so many people to use Jennifer McClure's word are stuck. Take the step. Stop thinking about the mountain. Take the first step. Start. Go. I love that. It's so simple. And yet we get we struggle with that. So that's the, the first one. The second one's get the scare. And that means do the work. You took the step good for you. There's a bunch more now and you've proven you can do it. Do the work. You find success and you grow. Grow might mean many things. Um, uh, You're going to learn something in the book, of course, when they scare kids, they actually grow in size (laughs) as monsters. Um, But that's what it means. It's learning and and improving and then win. Win is about reflecting on what you can do moving forward that's different and better. Hey, I've been through this cycle. Um, can I do that again? Yes, but there's even more. Can I do it better? What might I improve? So that's the general idea. And it became a mantra that helped all of them discover their, their gifts in the book.
0: Well, that's great. I love things that uh, we can kind of bring into our hearts and take with us. And and that taking the first step, as you said, I know again, from having raised a millennial who for some reason called me with every problem that arose (laughs) and 100% of my (laughs) advice was always just do something. You know, why are you calling me? Why is that the first step? You know, take a step, try something, Google it. Look for YouTube, don't call mom. You know, so, so so whether you're a millennial who calls mom first, he's very capable today, very successful in his career for all the people who are saying I'm throwing him under the bus. He's doing very well. Does not call me. <laughs> so we all learn and grow, but I love that. Take the step, get the scare. Grow and win. Well, I love these uh short fable books and can't wait to read it when it comes out on April 18th. So hopefully everyone else will go out and get it too. Uh, I think the fable books and the stories are a great way for us to remember. I mean, like you said, who moved my cheese, the five dysfunctions of a team. You know, those are our classic books, and I'm sure this is another one to join them. So leave us with some words of wisdom. I wouldn't do this to just anybody, but I know I can say, come on, Dr. Todd, do it drop something on us that's profound?
1: Well, I I don't know if it's profound, but I did mention this in the book. I mention it in talks. I mention it all the time because I try to remind myself of this all the time. And that is that more is always possible. Everything is just a task that needs to be thought about, broken down, and some skills built around what you've got now to help you go do that. More is always possible. And when people believe that, it's hilarious how they start doing what you and I were just talking about, which is getting up and starting to go try and do just that.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate your advice and your wisdom that you've shared in the book and with us today. And we look forward to having you back on the podcast. I've given you several book ideas today, so I can't wait for the next book. And I look forward to having you back to talk about those then. So thanks for coming and joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. See you. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence.